Part Two of The Ethical Engineer by Harry Harrison. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Reading by Greg Marguerite. Part Two of The Ethical Engineer by Harry Harrison. Chapter Four. It did not kill him at once, but stood staring down at him. And as the slow seconds ticked by and Jason was still alive, he forced himself to consider this menace that appeared from the blackness. K'ivistael, the creature said, and for the first time Jason realized it was human. The meaning of the question picked at the edge of his exhausted brain. He felt he could almost understand it, though he had never heard the language before. He tried to answer, but there was only a hoarse gargle from his throat. Then Ke'en Torkoi Ripidu. More lights sprang from the darkness inland, and with them the sound of running feet. As they came closer, Jason had a cleaner look at the man above him and could understand why he had mistaken him for some inhuman creature. His limbs were completely wrapped in lengths of stained leather. His chest and body protected by thick and overlapping leather plates covered with blood-red designs. Over his head was fitted the cochlea-shaped shell of some animal, spiraling to a point in front. Two small openings had been drilled in it for eye-holes. Great finger-long teeth had been set in the lower edge of the shell to heighten the already fearsome appearance. The only thing at all human about the creature was the matted and filthy beard that trickled out of the shell below the teeth. There were too many other details for Jason to absorb so suddenly. Something bulky slung behind one shoulder, dark objects at the waist. A heavy club reached and prodded Jason in the ribs, but he was too close to unconsciousness to resist. A guttural command halted the torchbearers a full five meters from the spot where Jason lay. He wondered vaguely why the armored man had not let them approach closer since the light from their torches barely reached this far. Everything on this planet seemed inexplicable. For a few moments Jason must have lost consciousness, because when he looked again the torch was stuck in the sand at his side, and the armored man had one of Jason's boots off and was pulling at the other. Jason could only writhe feebly, but not prevent the theft. For some reason he could not force his body to follow his will. His sense of time seemed to have altered as well, and though every second dragged heavily by, events occurred with startling rapidity. The boots were gone now, and the man fumbled at Jason's clothes, stopping every few seconds to glance up at the row of torchbearers. The magnetic seals were alien to him. The sharp teeth sewn into the leather over his knuckles dug into Jason's flesh as he struggled to open the seals or tear the resistant metal cloth. He was growling with impatience when he accidentally touched the release button on the med kit and it dropped into his hand. The shining gadget seemed to please him, but when one of the sharp needles slipped through his thick hand coverings and stabbed him, he howled with rage, throwing the machine down and grinding it into a splintered ruin in the sand. The loss of this irreplaceable device goaded Jason into motion. He sat up and was trying to reach the med-kit when unconsciousness surged over him again. Sometime before dawn the pain in his head drove him reluctantly back to awareness. There were some foul-smelling hides draped over him that retained a little of his body heat. He pulled away the stifling fold that covered his face and stared up at the stars. 
cold points of light that glittered in the frigid night. The air was a stimulant, and he sucked deep gasps of it that burned his throat but seemed to clear his thoughts. For the first time he realized that his disorientation had been caused by that crack on the head he had received when the ship crashed. His exploring fingers found a swollen rawness on his skull. He must have a brain concussion. That would explain his earlier inability to move or think straight. The cold air was numbing his face, and he willingly pulled the hairy skin back over his head. He wondered what had happened to Micah Salmon after the local thug in the horror outfit had bashed him with the club. This was a messy and unexpected end for the man after he had managed to survive the crash of the ship. Jason had no special affection for the undernourished zealot, but he did owe him a life. Micah had saved him after the crash, only to be murdered himself by this local assassin. Jason made a mental note to kill the man just as soon as he was physically up to it. At the same time, he was a little astonished at his reflexive acceptance of the need for this bloodthirsty atonement of a life for a life. Apparently his long stay on Pyrrhus had trodden down his normal dislike for killing except in self-defense, and from what he had seen so far of this world, the Pyrran training would certainly be most useful. The sky showed gray through a tear in the hide, and he pushed it back to look at the dawn. Micah Salmon lay next to him, his head projecting from a covering fur. His hair was matted and caked with dark blood, but he was still breathing. Harder to kill than I thought, Jason grunted as he levered himself painfully up on one elbow and took a good look at this world where his spaceship sabotage had landed him. It was a grim desert, lumped with huddled bodies like the aftermath of a battle at world's end. A few of them were stumbling to their feet, holding their skins around them, the only signs of life in that immense waste of gritty sand. On one side a ridge of dunes cut off sight of the sea, but he could hear the dull boom of waves on the shore. White frost rimmed the ground, and the chill wind made his eyes blink and water. On the top of the dunes a remembered figure suddenly appeared, the armored man doing something with what appeared to be lengths of rope. There was metallic tinkling, suddenly cut off. Micah Salmon groaned and stirred. "'How do you feel?' Jason asked. "'Those are two of the finest bloodshot eyeballs I have ever seen.' "'Where am I?' "'Now, that is a bright and original question. I didn't pick you for the type who watched historical space operas on the TV. I have no idea where we are.' but I can give you a brief synopsis of how we arrived here, if you're up to it. I remember we swam ashore, then something evil came from the darkness, like a demon from hell. We fought. And he bashed in your head. One quick blow, and that was about all the fight there was. I had a better look at your demon, though I was in no better condition to fight him than you are. He's a man dressed in a weird outfit out of an attic's nightmare and appears to be the boss of this crew of rugged campers. Other than that, I have little idea of what's going on except that he stole my boots and I'm going to get them back if I have to kill him for them. Do not lust after material things, Micah intoned seriously, and do not talk of killing a man for material gain. You are evil, Jason, and my boots are gone, and my clothes, too." Micah had thrown back his covering skins and made this startling discovery. Belial, he roared, Asmodeus, Abaddon, Apollyon, and Piesel Bub! 
Very nice, Jason said admiringly. You really have been studying up on your demonology. Were you just listing them or calling on them for aid? Silence, blasphemer! I have been robbed! He rose to his feet, and the wind whistling around his almost bare body quickly gave his skin a light touch of blue. I'm going to find the evil creature that did this and force him to return what is mine. Micah turned to leave, but Jason reached out and grabbed his ankle with a wrestling grip, twisted it, and brought the man thudding to the ground. The fall dazed him, and Jason pulled the skins back over the raw-boned form. We're even, Jason said. You saved my life last night. Just now, I saved yours. You're barehanded and wounded, while the old man of the mountain up there is a walking armory, and anyone with the personality to wear that kind of an outfit will kill you as easily as he picks his teeth. So take it easy and try to avoid trouble. There's a way out of this mess. There's a way out of every mess, if you look for it, and I'm going to find it. In fact, I'm going to take a walk right now and start my research. Agreed? A groan was his only answer, since Micah was unconscious again, fresh blood seeping from his injured scalp. Jason stood and wrapped his hides about his body as some protection from the wind, tying the loose ends together. Then he kicked through the sand until he found a smooth rock that would fit inside his fist with just the end protruding, and thus armed made his way out through the stirring forms of the sleepers. Micah was conscious again when Jason returned, and the sun was well above the horizon. The people were all awake now, a shuffling, scratching herd of about thirty men, women, and children. They were identical in their filth and crude skin wrappings, milling about with a random motion or sitting blankly on the ground. They showed no interest at all in the two strangers. Jason handed a tarred leather cup to Micah and squatted next to him. Drink that. It's water. The only thing that anyone here had to drink. I didn't find any food. He still had the stone in his hand, and while he talked he rubbed it on the sand. The end was moist and red, and some long hairs were stuck in it. I took a good look around this camp, and there's very little more than you can see from here. Just this crowd of broken-down types, a few bundles rolled in hide, and some of them are carrying skin water bottles. They have a simple, me-stronger pecking order, so I pecked a bit, and we can drink. Food comes next. Who are they? What are we doing? Micah asked, mumbling a little, obviously still suffering the after-effects of the blow. Jason looked at the contused skull and decided not to touch it. The wound had bled freely and clotted. Washing it off with the highly dubious water would accomplish little and might add infection to their other troubles. I'm only sure of one thing, Jason said. They're slaves. I don't know why they are here and what they are doing or where they are going, but their status is painfully clear. Ours, too. Old Nasty up there on the hill is the boss. The rest of us are slaves. Slaves? Micah snorted, the word penetrating through the pain in his head. It is abominable. The slaves must be freed. No lectures, please, and try to be realistic, even if it hurts. There are only two slaves that need freeing here, you and I. These people seem nicely adjusted to the status quo, and I see no reason to change it. I'm not starting any abolitionist campaigns until I can see my way clearly out of this mess, and I probably won't start any then, either. 
This planet has been going on a long time without me, and will probably keep rolling along once I'm gone. Coward! You must fight for the truth, and the truth will make you free! I can hear those capital letters again, Jason groaned. The only thing right now that is going to make me free is me, which may be bad poetry, but it is still the truth. The situation here is rough, but not unbeatable. So listen and learn. The boss, his name is Ch'aka, in case you care, seems to have gone off on a hunt of some kind. He's not far away and will be back soon, so I'll try to give you the entire setup quickly. I thought I recognized the language, and I was right. It's a corrupt form of Esperanto, the language all the Torito worlds speak. This altered language, plus the fact that these people live about one step above the Stone Age culture, is pretty sure evidence that they are cut off from any contact with the rest of the galaxy, though I hope not. There may be a trading base somewhere on the planet, and if there is, we'll find it later. We have enough other things to worry about right now, but at least we can speak the language. These people have contracted and lost a lot of sounds, and even introduced a glottal stop, something that no language needs. But with a little effort, the meaning can still be made out. I do not speak Esperanto. Then learn it. It's easy enough, even in this jumbled form. And shut up and listen. These locals are born and bred slaves, and it is all they know. There is a little squabbling in the ranks, with the bigger ones pushing the work on the weak ones when Ch'aka isn't looking. But I have that situation well in hand. Ch'aka is our big problem, and we have to find out a lot more things before we can tackle him. He is boss, fighter, father, provider, and destiny for this mob, and he seems to know his job. So try to be a good slave for a while. Slave? I? Micah arched his back and tried to rise. Jason pushed him back to the ground, harder than was necessary. Yes, you, and me too. That is the only way we are going to survive in this arrangement. Do what everyone else does. Obey orders, and you stand a good chance of staying alive until we can find a way out of this tangle. Micah's answer was drowned out in a roar from the dunes as Ch'aka returned. The slaves climbed quickly to their feet, grabbing up their bundles, and began to form a single, wide-spaced line. Jason helped Micah to stand and wrap strips of skin around his feet, then supported most of his weight as they stumbled to a place in the open formation. Once they were all in position, Ch'aka kicked the nearest one, and they began walking slowly forward, looking carefully at the ground as they went. Jason had no idea of the significance of the action, but as long as he and Micah weren't bothered, it didn't matter. He had enough work cut out for him just to keep the wounded man on his feet. Somehow Micah managed to dredge up enough strength to keep going. One of the slaves pointed down and shouted, and the line stopped. He was too far away for Jason to make out the cause of the excitement, but the man bent over and scratched a hole with a short length of pointed wood. In a few seconds he dug up something round and not quite the size of his hand. He raised it over his head and brought the thing to Ch'aka at a shambling run. The slave-master took it and bit off a chunk, and when the man who had found it turned away he gave him a lusty kick. The line moved forward again. Two more of the mysterious objects were found, both of which Ch'aka ate as well. Only when his immediate hunger was satisfied did he make any attempt to be the good provider. 
When the next one was found, he called over a slave and threw the object into a crudely woven basket he was carrying on his back. After this, the basket-toting slave walked directly in front of Ch'aka, who was carefully watching that every one of the things that was dug up went into the basket. Jason wondered what they were, and they were edible, too. An angry rumbling in his stomach reminded him. The slave next in line to Jason shouted and pointed to the sand. Jason let Micah sink to a sitting position when they stopped and watched with interest as the slave attacked the ground with his piece of wood, scratching around a tiny sprig of green that projected from the desert sand. His burrowings uncovered a wrinkled gray object from which the green leaves were growing. A root or tuber of some kind. It appeared as edible as a piece of stone to Jason, but obviously not to the slave who drooled heavily and actually had the temerity to sniff the root. Ch'aka howled with anger at this, and when the slave had dropped the root into the basket with the others, he received a kick so strong that he had to limp back painfully to his position in line. Soon after this, Ch'aka called a halt, and the tattered slaves huddled around while he poked through the basket. He called them over one at a time, and gave them one or more of the roots according to some merit system of his own. The basket was almost empty when he poked his club at Jason. Ke'i nam hevasvi? he asked. Mia namo estas Jason, mia amico estas Mica. Jason answered in correct Esperanto that Ch'aka seemed to understand well enough because he grunted and dug through the contents of the basket. His masked face stared at them, and Jason could feel the impact of the unseen watching eyes. The club pointed again. Where you come from? That you ship that burn? Sink? That was our ship. We come from far away. From other side of ocean? This was apparently the largest distance the slaver could imagine. From the other side of the ocean, correct. Jason was in no mood to deliver a lecture on astronomy. When do we eat? You a rich man in your country. Got a ship. Got shoes. Now I got your shoes. You a slave here. My slave. You both my slaves. I'm your slave, I'm your slave, Jason said resignedly, but even slaves have to eat. Where's the food? Ch'aka grubbed around in the basket until he found a tiny and withered root which he broke in half and threw into the sand in front of Jason. Work hard. You get more. Jason picked up the pieces and brushed away as much of the dirt as he could. He handed one to Micah and took a tentative bite out of the other. It was gritty with sand and tasted like slightly rancid wax. It took a distinct effort to eat the repulsive thing, but he did. Without a doubt it was food, no matter how unwholesome, and would do until something better came along. "'What did you talk about?' Micah asked, grinding his own portion between his teeth. "'Just swapping lies. He thinks we're his slaves, and I agreed. But it's just temporary,' Jason added as anger colored Micah's face, and he started to climb to his feet. Jason pulled him back down. This is a strange planet. You're injured. We have no food or water and no idea at all how to survive in this place. The only thing we can do to stay alive is to go along with what old ugly there says. If he wants to call us slaves, fine. We're slaves. Better to die free than to live in chains. Will you stop the nonsense? Better to live in chains and learn how to get rid of them. That way you end up alive free rather than dead free a much more attractive state. 
Now shut up and eat. We can't do anything until you're out of the walking wounded class. For the rest of the day the line of walkers plodded across the sand, and in addition to helping Micah, Jason found two of the krenoi, the edible roots. They stopped before dusk and dropped gratefully to the sand. When the food was divided they received a slightly larger portion, as evidence perhaps of Jason's attention to the work. Both men were exhausted and fell asleep as soon as it was dark. During the following morning they had their first break from the walking routine. Their food-searching always paralleled the unseen sea, and one slave walked the crest of the dunes that hid the water from sight. He must have seen something of interest, because he leaped down from the mound and waved both arms wildly. Ch'aka ran heavily to the dunes and talked with the scout, then booted the man from his presence. Jason watched with growing interest as he unwrapped the bulky package slung from his back and disclosed an efficient-looking crossbow, cocking it by winding on a built-in crank. This complicated and deadly piece of machinery seemed very much out of place with the primitive slave-holding society, and Jason wished that he could get a better look at the device. Ch'aka fumbled a quarrel from another pouch and fitted it to the bow. The slaves sat silently on the sand while their master stalked along the base of the dunes, then wormed his way over them and out of sight, creeping silently on his stomach. A few minutes later there was a scream of pain from behind the dunes, and all the slaves jumped to their feet and raced to see. Jason left Micah where he lay and was in the first rank of observers that broke over the hillocks and onto the shore. They stopped at the usual distance and shouted compliments about the quality of the shot and what a mighty hunter Ch'aka was. Jason had to admit there was a certain truth in the claims. A large furred amphibian lay at the water's edge the fletched end of the crossbow bolt projecting from its thick neck and a thin stream of blood running down to mix with the surging waves. Meat! Meat today! Ch'aka kills the Rosmaro! Ch'aka is wonderful! Hail Ch'aka! Great provider! Jason shouted to get into the swing of things. When do we eat? The master ignored his slaves, sitting heavily on the dune until he regained his breath after the stalk. Then, after cocking the crossbow again, he stalked over to the beast and with his knife cut out the quarrel, notching it against the bowstring still dripping with blood. Get wood for fire, he commanded. You, Upsweeney, you use the knife. Shuffling backwards, Ch'aka sat down on a hillock and pointed the crossbow at the slave who approached the kill. Ch'aka had left his knife in the animal, and Upsweeney pulled it free and began to methodically flay and butcher the beast. All the time he worked, he carefully kept his back turned to Ch'aka and the aimed bow. A trusting soul, our slave-driver, Jason mumbled to himself as he joined the others in searching the shore for driftwood. Ch'aka had all the weapons as well as a constant fear of assassination. If Upsweeney tried to use the knife for anything other than the intended piece of work, he would get the crossbow quarrel in the back of his head. Very efficient. Enough driftwood was found to make a sizable fire, and when Jason returned with his contribution, the Rosmaro had been hacked into large chunks. Ch'aka kicked his slaves away from the heap of wood and produced a small device from another of his sacks. Interested, Jason pushed as close as he dared into the front rank of the watching circle. Though he had never seen one of them before, the operation of the fire-maker was obvious to him. A spring-loaded arm drove a fragment of stone against a piece of steel. 
Sparks flew out and were caught in a cup of tinder, where Ch'aka blew on them until they burst into flame. Where had the fire-lighter and the crossbow come from? They were evidence of a higher level of culture than that possessed by these slave-holding nomads. This was the first bit of evidence that Jason had seen that there might be more to the cultural life of this planet than they had seen since their landing. Later, while they were gorging themselves on the seared meat, he drew Micah aside and pointed this out. There's hope yet. These illiterate thugs never manufactured that crossbow or fire-lighter. We must find out where they came from and see about getting there ourselves. I had a quick look at the quarrel when Ch'aka pulled it out, and I'll swear that it was turned from steel. This has significance? Micah asked, puzzled. It means an industrial society and possible interstellar contact. Then we must ask Ch'aka where he obtained them and leave at once. There will be authorities. We will contact them, explain the situation, obtain transportation to Cassilia. I, I will not place you under arrest until that time. How considerate of you, Jason said, lifting one eyebrow. Micah was absolutely impossible, and Jason probed at his moral armor to see if there were any weak spots. Won't you feel guilty about bringing me back to get killed? After all, we are companions in trouble, and I did save your life. I will grieve, Jason. I can see that though you are evil, you are not completely evil, and given the right training could be fitted for a useful place in society. But my personal grief must not be allowed to alter events. You forget that you committed a crime and must pay the penalty." Ch'aka belched cavernously inside his shell-helmet and howled at his slaves. "'Enough eating, you pigs! You get fat! Wrap the meat and carry it. We have light yet to look for Krenoi. Move!' Once more the line was formed and began its slow pace across the desert. More of the edible roots were found, and once they stopped briefly to fill the water-bags at a spring that bubbled up out of the sand. The sun dropped toward the horizon, and what little warmth it possessed was absorbed by a bank of clouds. Jason looked around and shivered, then noticed the line of dots moving on the horizon. He nudged Micah, who still leaned heavily on him. Looks like company coming. I wonder where they fit into the program. Pain had blurred Micah's attention, and he took no notice, and, surprisingly enough, neither did any of the other slaves nor Ch'aka. The dots expanded and became another row of marchers, apparently absorbed in the same task as Jason's group. They plodded forward, making a slow examination of the sand, followed behind by the solitary figure of their master. The two lines slowly approached each other, paralleling the shore. Near the dunes was a crude mound of stones, and the line of walking slaves stopped as soon as they reached it, dropping with satisfied grunts onto the sand. The Karen was obviously a border marker, and Ch'aka walked to it and rested his foot on one of the stones, watching while the other line of slaves approached. They too stopped at the Karen and settled to the ground. Both groups stared with dull-eyed lack of interest, and only the slave-masters showed any animation. The other master stopped a good ten paces before he reached Ch'aka and waved an evil-looking stone hammer over his head. "'Hate you, Ch'aka!' he roared. "'Hate you, Fasimba!' boomed back the answer. The exchange was as formal as a pas de deux, and just about as warlike. Both men shook their weapons and shouted a few insults, then settled down to a quiet conversation. 
Fasimba was garbed in the same type of hideous and fear-inspiring outfit as Ch'aka, differing only in unimportant details. Instead of a conch, his head was encased in the skull of one of the amphibious Rosmeroi, brightened up with some extra tusks and horns. The differences between the two men were all minor, and mostly a matter of decoration or variation of weapon design. They were obviously slave-masters and equals. "'Killed a Rosmaro today. Second time in ten days,' Ch'aka said. "'You got a good piece of coast. Plenty Rosmaroy. Where are the two slaves you owe me?' "'I owe you two slaves?' You owe me two slaves. Don't play like stupid. I got the iron arrows for you from the Zertanoi. One slave you paid with died. You still owe another one. I got two slaves for you. I got two slaves more. I pulled out of the ocean. You got a good piece of coast. Ch'aka walked down his line of slaves until he came to the overbold one he had half crippled with a kick the day before. Pulling him to his feet, he booted him toward the other mob. "'Here's a good one,' he said, delivering the goods with a last parting kick. "'Looks skinny. Not too good.' "'No, all muscles. Works hard. Doesn't eat much.' "'You're a liar.' "'Hate you, Fasimba. Hate you, Ch'aka. Where's the other one?' "'Got a good one. Stranger from the ocean. He can tell you funny stories. Work hard.' Jason turned in time to avoid the full force of the kick, but it was still strong enough to knock him sprawling. Before he could get up, Ch'aka had clutched Micah Salmon by the arm and dragged him across the invisible line to the other group of slaves. Fasimba stalked over to examine him, prodding him with a spiked toe. "'Don't look good. Big hole on the head.' "'He works hard,' Ch'aka said. "'Hole almost healed. He very strong.' "'You give me new one if he dies?' Fasimba asked doubtfully. I give you. Hate you, Fasimba. Hate you, Chaka. The slave herds were prodded to their feet and moved back the way they had come, and Jason shouted after Chaka. Wait! Don't sell my friend. We work better together. You can get rid of someone else. The slaves gaped at this sudden outburst, and Chaka wheeled, raising his club. You shut up. You're a slave. You tell me once more to do what, and I kill you. Jason shut up, since it was very obvious that this was the only thing he could do. He had a few qualms about Micah's possible fate. If he survived the wound, he was certainly not the type to bow to the inevitabilities of slaveholding life. Yet Jason had done his best to save him, and that was that. Now Jason would think about Jason for a while. They made a brief march before dark, apparently just until the other slaves were out of sight, then stopped for the night. Jason settled himself into the lee of a mound that broke the force of the wind a bit and unwrapped a piece of scorched meat he had salvaged from the earlier feast. It was tough and oily, but far superior to the barely edible crinoi that made up the greater part of the native diet. He chewed noisily on the bone and watched while one of the other slaves sidled over toward him. "'Give me some your meat.' The slave asked in a whining voice, and only when she talked did Jason realize that this was a girl. All the slaves were alike in their matted hair and skin wrappings. He ripped off a chunk of meat. Here, sit down and eat it. What's your name? In exchange for his generosity, he intended to get some information from his captive audience. Ijal, 
She tore at the meat, held tightly in one fist, while the index finger of her free hand scratched for enemies in her tangled hair. Where do you come from? Did you always live here? Like this? How do you ask a slave if she has always been a slave? Not here. I come from Bulwejo first, then Fasimba. Now I belong to Chaaka. What or who is Bulwejo? Someone like our boss, Chaaka? She nodded, gnawing at the meat. And the Zertanoi that Fasimba gets his arrows from. Who are they? You don't know much, she said, finishing the meat and licking the grease from her fingers. I know enough to have meat when you don't have any, so don't abuse my hospitality. Who are the Zertanoi? Everyone knows who they are, she shrugged with incomprehension and looked for a soft spot in the sand to sit down. They live in the desert. They go around in Karoi. They, they stink. They have many nice things. One of them gave me my best thing. If I show it to you, you won't take it? No, I won't touch it, but I would like to see anything they have made. Here, here's some more meat. Now let me see your best thing." Ijal rooted in her skins for a hidden pocket and dragged out something that she concealed in her clenched fist. She held it out proudly and opened it, and there was enough light left for Jason to make out the rough form of a red glass bead. "'Isn't this so very nice?' she asked. "'Very nice,' Jason agreed, and for an instant felt a touch of real sorrow when he looked at the pathetic bauble. This girl's ancestors had come to this planet in spaceships with a knowledge of the most advanced sciences. Cut off, their children had degenerated into this, barely conscious slaves who could pride a worthless piece of glass above all things. I like you. I'll, I'll show you my best thing again. I like you, too. Good night. 